Well, good morning again, everyone, and a special good morning to everybody who's tuning in um, electronically, wherever you may be today. Good morning to those of you at our Spanish Trail campus. We welcome you all this morning and are so grateful for you. We love you, and we appreciate everybody that's watching either on Facebook Live or on our website, live stream location. It's just a great thing to be able to be connected on the Lord's Day and to celebrate and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you that may be newer to Hillcrest, today is a Discover Hillcrest Sunday at the Nine Mile Campus. And so let me personally invite you to join me today at four o'clock over in the Northwest Hall for about two hours. And we'll get you um, brought up to speed about what life and ministry at Hillcrest is really all about. Discover class is required for membership in our church. And we believe that everybody that is a part of Hillcrest should be a member of Hillcrest, and I'll explain why this afternoon. No obligation uh, to anybody. You don't have to join the church by coming, but you do have to take the course to join the church, whether that's today or later. So come and join us. We have a great time. Don't keep you too long, and uh, just know that we look forward to seeing you today at 4 o'clock if you've got a few minutes to spare. Well, who's ready to get in the Word? Would you say amen? We're in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, four chapters long, and we're still in chapter number one, and we'll be there today and then once again next week. And so join me in Colossians chapter one. If you need a pew Bible here at Nine Mile, there's one in front of you, I know. And we're on page 924. There's also an insert in your worship guide this morning with some fill in the blanks if you'd like to use that to kind of keep up with where we're going this morning. I got a new phone a couple of months ago. And man, you're talking about having bells and whistles. This thing will do anything but scramble your eggs in the morning. And one of the new features on my new phone is something that's called facial recognition software. Anybody use facial recognition software? You don't have to use it on your phone, but if you'd like to enable it, you go through a little setup procedure and you hold the phone up to your face at all these different angles, you know, so it can capture your image. And now, rather than when you open your phone or when you go into an app of some kind, Rather than having to put in a password or a numeric code, all you do is look at the telephone and it recognizes your face and goes right into your phone or right into whatever app that you're looking for. I've traveled internationally over the last year several times and now rather than showing my passport to the booking agent as I get onto the plane, they've got a little screen there and you just look into the screen and it says, welcome Mr. Locke. That's kind of scary to be honest with you a little bit. But they use facial recognition software at airports, at immigration stands. You don't have to see a person to enter a country. In certain parts of the world, you just look into a screen and it recognizes who you are. I know some people that I wish there was some kind of technology like that that they could use to recognize who Jesus really is. Today I wanna talk with you about the subject, a positive ID of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I told a friend of mine this week, a pastor buddy of mine, this coming Sunday, I feel like I need to preach with my shoes off because the passage we're at today is high and holy ground. I'm convinced that the passage we're looking at today and next Sunday And into chapter two 
is the whole reason why the letter to the Colossians is in the Bible. It's certainly the most important passage in Paul's letter to the Colossians, which makes it one of the most important passages that you find anywhere in the Bible. We're going to dig deep theologically today because Jesus of Nazareth is, I believe, the most controversial figure who ever lived. And rarely, whether it be the first century or the 21st century, rather, rarely has he been positively identified. That was certainly true in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. Lots of false claims made about who Jesus really was and what Jesus really came to do. Times really haven't changed all that much. There were lots of opinions about the role of the, not only the identity of Jesus, but the role of Jesus in the development of a person's spiritual life who was seeking to find God and life with God. That was true, of course, too, with the baby Christians who were in the church at Colossae. Church really hadn't been around all that long, to be honest with you. And there wasn't a lot of Christian bookstores. In fact, there weren't any Christian bookstores. They didn't have any online material. They didn't have any television preachers or radio personalities. They were just trying to learn the gospel through the teaching of the apostles and those commissioned by the apostles. And so Paul, right here at the beginning, getting his introduction out of the way, he dives immediately into the most deep part of anything that he says in his letter to the Colossians because he knows that to get the identity of Jesus Christ wrong, to misidentify the Lord Jesus Christ, the consequences of that were catastrophic. In fact, Jesus taught about the consequences of not properly responding to who he truly was. He called it hell. And so right up front, Paul goes deep And that's why this becomes the most important teaching in Colossians and one of the most important teachings in the Bible. Let's take a look at what it says here in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Everybody with me, say amen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's say that last phrase together. The purpose for Paul's entire statement is what? Together. That in everything he might be. Father, we just thank you for this powerful scripture. And we know, those of us who have walked with you, that you are the supreme, superior, all-sufficient, preeminent Lord of the universe. And Lord, help this passage come alive before us this morning, not so that we just know who Jesus is, but so that we properly respond to him, that he might live in us and we might live in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you know, maybe as we unpack this passage, the best place to start is to back up a couple of verses and take a look at the final 
two verses that we actually looked at last Sunday because the final two verses, verses 13 and 14 of chapter one, the passage that we looked at last week, kind of form a natural segue into this incredibly important paragraph that we're looking at uh, today. Because Paul, beginning in verse 13, prays that the church, remember, might live with a grateful heart. That's one of the things he prays for, gratitude to God for everything that God has done. And he defines that in part in verse 13. You ought to be grateful, Paul says, because God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now that beloved son, of course, is a reference uh, to Jesus Christ, the Savior, who died on the cross, and so you have both person of Christ and work of Christ spoken of in that passage. The beloved son who purchased through his death on the cross our redemption and provided our greatest need, forgiveness of sin. And in case there's any confusion about just who that beloved son actually is, Paul moves from that here into verse 15, and he basically says with the verses that follow, let me take just a minute and make sure that y'all understand who that beloved son I'm talking about truly is in terms of his identity and in terms of his nature. Let me give you a fourfold dimension of a positive ID of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Well, first of all, Paul goes out of his way to help us understand that Jesus is God the Son. He begins by presenting Jesus here in verse 15 as the image of the invisible God. The word image is the Greek word icon. You know what an icon is? An icon is some kind of a representation of something else. An image is a likeness, a representation of a real person. And it can be a number of different forms. An image can be a statue. An image can be a painting, an image can be a reflection in a mirror, an image can be a likeness on a coin. You remember the story where the Pharisees were quizzing Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar and Jesus held up a denarius to the Pharisees and what question did he ask him? Whose image is on this coin? It's the same word, whose icon? is on this denarius. So whatever the form may be, an image is a direct reflection. It's an accurate likeness of a very real person. And that's who Jesus was in relation to God the Father, who the Bible, by the way, says nobody has ever seen, right? Nobody has ever seen the eternal God of glory. And yet, that's who Jesus is. He's the exact likeness of God in human flesh, in his birth and in his life. Jesus became for us in the incarnation of God, which is what we celebrate every Christmas, every December 25th. Jesus became for us the God that we can see. The writer to the Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact what? Say it out loud. The exact imprint, that's a different word, same concept, the exact imprint of his nature. The word imprint is the Greek word character. We get our word character from it. Kind of like a, a, a character of a letter R, for example, on an old-fashioned typewriter. 
that character strikes a piece of paper and it leaves an exact imprint. What was on the character is left on the paper and the two are the same. And that's who Jesus was. Jesus is the exact imprint, the image of the invisible God. Paul will write to the Philippians in Philippians chapter two and give us what amounts to a song about Jesus. It was an early hymn to Christ in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. It's one of the great passages of the Bible, kind of a companion passage to this one. And there in Philippians two, he begins by describing Jesus as in very nature God, having what he calls equality with God. All of this is the language of identity so that there's no mistaking who Jesus actually is. And it's affirmed all over the New Testament. You can mark it down. Jesus is not a creation of God. Jesus is not God's baby. Jesus is not an extension of God. Jesus is not a caricature of God. Jesus doesn't even merely resemble God and he doesn't merely act as a representative of God. No, John says in his gospel, in the beginning of the gospel of John, about Jesus, who he calls there the word of God. John says it very clearly. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God and the word, watch it, was God. No misunderstanding that or no way to mistake what John's talking about. And then he goes down in verse 14 and says that this word who is and was God became flesh. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this is why Jesus will affirm, of course, to Philip there in that great and familiar passage in John 14, not long before he died. They're right there in the upper room on the night they took the Lord's Supper together. And Philip is kind of posing all of these elementary questions to Jesus, questions that he should have already known the answer to. And Jesus looks at him and says, have I not been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has what? Say it out loud. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because I am the image of the invisible God. I am the exact character, the exact representation of his divine nature. Does that make sense to everybody? You can't miss it here. You miss it here and you can't be saved. Jesus is God in human flesh, God the Son, fully God in every respect. That's where Paul begins. But secondly, we're reminded here that as God the Son, Jesus is the second thing. He is Lord of creation. He is, Paul says in verse 15, not only the image of the invisible God, but he is also what? The firstborn of all creation. Now let me just stop there for a minute because that's an easy phrase to misunderstand. Because you need to understand what that doesn't mean and, and what it does mean because at first glance, you might be tempted to read that and assume that Jesus was the first thing God ever made or Jesus was the first being that God ever created. But that would be, of course, a false assumption, particularly based on all of the verses that we just read a moment ago. No, Paul's gonna go on to say in verse 17, if you wanna fast forward a few minutes, in verse 17, he says that Jesus is what? He is before all things. You know what that is? That's a statement of what we call pre-existence. 
pre-existence. It's a biblical way of saying that before anything that we know as matter came into being, Jesus was already there. Now, look at how John describes it in his gospel. Back again to John chapter 1, John 1 and verse 2. Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning with God. In the beginning that had no beginning. That's the import of that statement. Jesus was with God in the beginning that had no beginning. And then in verse 3, he says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, of course, being God the Son, if Jesus is God, then Jesus can't have a beginning point. He had a beginning point in his physical dimension. But don't you know Jesus existed long before he was born at Bethlehem? No, Jesus is God the Son, and as God, that makes Jesus eternal. As the Bible describes him in the book of Revelation, he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. All three of those statements contained in the final book in the Bible are statements of the eternal nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, without beginning and without ending. And so when Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn over all creation, he's not speaking first in terms of order. He's talking first in terms of supremacy. He is supreme over all creation. That's what that phrase means. It's a statement not of consequential order, but it's a statement of absolute authority. In other words, Jesus is Lord of creation Everything that is has come into being because of the creative power of Jesus Christ. And apart from the creative power of Jesus Christ, as God the Son, nothing was made that has been made. And that's true, of course, because God the Son was the one who carried out the work of creation. Again, in Colossians 1 verse 16, Paul affirms that. For by him, by whom? By Christ. All things were what? Say it out loud. All things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's also reinforced not only in the first chapter of John, but in the first chapter of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 1 and verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us By his son, through whom also he what? Say it out loud. He what? He created the world. That's right. So there's no way to misunderstand that. Jesus is the creative, ordering, organizing power and authority behind all of creation. Jesus created the world as we know it. Jesus created things in the greater universe as we know it. Jesus created things in heaven as we will one day come to know it. Jesus created things we can see. 
He created things that we cannot see. He created all of the spiritual powers, all of the authorities. Everything issues from Christ and everything is under the authority of Christ. And one day the Bible teaches when Jesus comes again, everything with now all enemies being subdued and placed firmly under his feet and defeated forever. When Christ comes again, not only has everything been placed under the authority of Christ that has issued from Christ, but one day it is coming, everything will be recreated in Christ. New heaven new earth, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Jesus is God the Son, and as God the Son, Jesus is Lord of creation. But Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us another angle as we seek to get a positive ID on the personality of Jesus Christ. He says, thirdly, that Jesus not only Lord of creation, but he takes it one step further. Jesus is the center of the universe. That's in verse 17. Not only has Jesus created all things, Paul adds in verse 17, in him all things hold together. And this is kind of the role in creation present today. I mean, we all know of what Jesus accomplished in creation past. We read about it in Genesis 1-1 and we observe it and we experience it every day as we walk outside of our homes and see the living creation played out before us. But Christ hasn't stopped working. I hope you know that. Jesus believes in hard work, amen. And so it's not like Jesus created, it's not like Jesus did Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth And then he plopped down in a lazy boy and lit a cigar. That's not what he did. No, the the Bible teaches that the universe continues to function with great order and with great precision for one simple reason. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is on his throne. It's Jesus that holds the universe together. He's actively engaged. Look once again at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Any way to misunderstand that? Not a bit. Clear as crystal. So not only did Jesus create the universe, But Jesus also upholds the universe. He sustains the universe. When Paul says back here in Colossians 2 that in Christ all things hold together, the idea there is coherence. In Christ all things cohere. So what he means by that is that the universe, everything that is in the universe, what we can see, what we can't see, all of it owes its continuing coherence, its synergy, its order, its organization. It owes it all to the active involvement of Jesus Christ. The ancient Greeks had a basic understanding of that kind of concept. If you were to talk to an ancient Greek anywhere around in the first century of the Apostle Paul's day, they would have dialogued with you in a philosophical debate about the universe, as people still do today, and where it came from and how it is ordered and 
and how it exists. And they believe, the ancient Greeks believed that there was an ordering authority behind the universe, something that kept everything together. They couldn't identify it, but they had a word for it. If you're taking notes, you might want to write the word logos down. Sometimes said logos, but that's an incorrect pronunciation. It's a short O, not a long O. Logos, say that together with me, please. Logos, translated word in John chapter one. So when John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, he's using that Greek word logos. And so John is doing something very intentional by using the concept logos in John one rather than just coming out and saying Jesus because he's identifying with his Greco-Roman audience who believed in a logos. They just didn't believe it was a person. They never thought to equate it to a person. It was more of a concept or a force or a philosophical idea to them. They couldn't get their arms around it. We get our word logical from the word logos. And so what they meant was there is a logical ordering to the universe. We don't really know how to define it or what it is or where it comes from, but it's behind everything. It's why there's order in the universe rather than total chaos, kind of like the force in Star Wars. You have Star Wars fans here today? Remember that phrase? May the force be what? With you. But but you couldn't define the force. It was just something that was there that provided power and organization and might so that there was a cohesiveness to everything. But then along come the biblical writers, right? Men like John and, and like Paul. And they come along and they begin to preach, okay, there is a, we believe in the Logos. And we're with you on that. There is something behind the universe. <laughs> there is something that created the universe. There is something that exists today that, co- that causes it to be coherent and ordered and precise. But then they look at their audience and they say, but it's not a nebulous force. And it's certainly not a philosophical concept. There is a logos and the logos is not a concept or a force. The logos is a person and we know what his name is. It's Jesus Christ. And again, that's how John begins his gospel. It's one of the greatest passages in all of human literature. In the beginning that had no beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning and apart from the Logos, nothing was made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men and get this Greco-Roman people the Logos became flesh and he lived with us so that we could see his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth isn't that great and this is what Paul is reinforcing here to the Colossians. In him, all things hold together. And man, that's just really a staggering claim when you think about it. I mean, really, that this bedraggled, many would say this vagabond carpenter's son who owned one set of clothing 
who'd been beaten and crucified by the Romans just a few years earlier, that that guy was in fact the resurrected Christ who holds the entire cosmos together by the strength of his power? And they said, yeah. That's, what, that's exactly what we're saying. Man, stars burn because of Jesus. Planets orbit because of Jesus. Atoms function because of Jesus. Gravity tugs because of Jesus. Forests reproduce because of Jesus. Babies are made because of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that explains why Jesus has to be at the very center of the universe And at the center of the universe, he becomes the very center of all meaning and the center of all purpose. You know why? Because apart from Jesus, everything flies apart and nothing makes sense at all. And let me just say this morning, let me bring it down to earth. Because that's true not just as it relates to the universe, that's true for your life. You know where Jesus longs to live? And that's not automatic, by the way. The most important place Jesus wants to dwell is not at the center of the universe, but at the center of your life. Is he? See, that can happen, but for that to happen, you've got to break down the stony wall that exists around your heart, and you have to invite the creator Lord in to live. Because, and it's very important that you do that. That's the most important decision anybody ever makes. And it's critical that you make it. Because if you don't, nothing else in life will ever make sense. It'll never, your life will never be fully functional. You won't understand life. You won't understand where you came from. You won't understand why you're here. You sure won't understand what's going to happen when your heart starts, uh, stops beating. Life will have no meaning apart from the one who alone can bring coherence not only to the universe, but to your life, unless he's living within your heart. Nothing makes sense apart from the presence and power of Jesus Christ, whether it's the universe or whether it's your own soul. You understanding Jesus? He's God the Son. He's Lord of creation. He's the center of the universe who longs to be the center of your life. And then finally, Paul reminds us that Jesus is head of the church. That's verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, kind of at first glance, this one may seem a little bit out of place when you put it up alongside the first three that we've looked at in the massive uh, implications that Jesus is God in the flesh and as creator and organizer and coherent authority behind everything in the universe. Now, Paul does something that I said a moment ago. He brings this Jesus down to earth, so to speak. So this is really not out of place at all because you have to remember, who is Paul writing this letter to? He's writing it to the church, a baby church that's still trying to figure out how to do church, how to do life as the people of God. And that's important because Paul understands that it's the church that's called to be the launching pad 
of the gospel throughout the world. And he wants them to get it right. And you can't get it right when it comes to living as the church in a lost and dying world if you don't properly understand Jesus, particularly in his relationship, not only to the universe and to the cosmos, but to the church. So Paul brings our Lord down to earth, down to mission and ministry. And he does so by reminding us that just as Christ is Lord of creation, he's also Lord of his church. Now, do I need to remind everybody that um, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about a building, right? Everybody should learn that in Sunday school. Not a building. What is the church? People of God, that's right. Those who have been redeemed, transformed, born again. That's the church of the living God. Paul describes it here as the body. The body, he is the head of the body. So the church is often referred to as a body, the body of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing because when you become a believer, you're not just simply saved as a, saved as a standalone entity. You become part of a larger body called the church. And the Bible says that we are one body in Christ. And like any physical body, we are dependent on a head. The head of a physical body gives that body life, and it gives that body clarity. It gives that body understanding. It gives that body wisdom. It gives that body guidance. It gives that body direction. Make no mistake, we're dependent on our head. Uh, We often talk about somebody taking our head off, but they really don't do that because if they really did that, you'd be like instantly dead. It's like Adrian Rogers used to say, and I'm paraphrasing. He used to say, anything with no head is dead, and anything with two heads is messed up. Somebody say amen. No, we need a head, but we only need one head. And of course, our head, the church as the body of Christ, is designed to function with a head, only one head. And can I just say, The head of the church is not the pastor of the church. The head of the church is not the deacons of the church or a group of elders or a committee or a conglomeration of committees. Those are not spiritual heads in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, all servants serving under the one who is head. And that head, of course, is Christ and Christ alone because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against. No, it's his church and it's his church because he's the one that died for it. He's the one that bought it. He's the one that paid the necessary price for there to even be a people of God. He's the Savior who died and rose again in order to redeem it. And that's why Jesus and Jesus alone can look at us as the people of God and all the people of God throughout the world and say these important words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now do as I say. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. So it's that authority of Jesus as the redeeming Savior that compels us as his people not only to follow him, but to be on mission to preach the gospel and see our community, our state, our nation, and our world reconciled to God.
Well, are you seeing the big picture here that Paul's trying to paint with these four dimensions of Jesus? Man, if you need a positive idea of Jesus, you don't need to go much further than the first chapter of Colossians. And I'm just saying, Paul's painting a really big picture, the universal bigness of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's magnified. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but that's magnified by Paul's repeated use of the word all, A-L-L, in these short verses. Six times in the verses that we read this morning, you find the use of the word all. You read the next two verses, and there's another two uses of the word all. So eight times in about six verses, Paul magnifies the bigness of Jesus and the authority of Jesus by using the word all. Jesus is all the fullness of God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation who created all things in whom all things hold together. And one day he'll come again and reconcile all things unto himself. And what's the point of all of that? Verse 18, that in all things Christ might be what? Say it out loud preeminent. That's the point. Supreme. And this is why, brothers and sisters, when it comes to salvation, you can't add a thing to Jesus Christ and be saved. When it comes to eternal life, what I call Christ plus is a path to nowhere because Christ plus anything equals nothing at all. Salvation is not about Christ. What are you going to add to Jesus? What are you going to add to this? What are you going to add to a Christ whose life and whose work and whose resurrection has proven him and him alone to be preeminent? And by the way, if you could add anything to Christ, how would you possibly know that you've ever added enough in order to get God to accept you? How much would be enough to add to Jesus? Listen, if the Jesus Christ that we're not presented with here today is not enough, I'm just saying the only thing that leaves us with is a really weak Savior. And if that's the case, my question is, why bother with Jesus at all? No, the testimony of those who were with Jesus is very clear. Here's who you want to know who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's who he is. And it's this Jesus that confronts us in the face of our sin. It's this Jesus that paid the penalty for our sin. And the only solution for the brokenness of our life that's wrecked by sin, our only hope in life beyond the grave lies not in a Christ substitute or in anything that we can add to Christ. Any kind of Christ plus concoction will not do. Our only hope when it comes to matters of eternity rests in this simple formula, Christ alone. And the question is today, have you trusted nothing but the blood of Jesus to save your eternal soul that you might live forever with him And that place he's building for you right now called heaven. This, brothers and sisters, is why Jesus was so emphatic. I, myself, and I alone 
am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's eternal word, and let all who agree with it say amen.